Feast of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. And welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Uh, great to be back. I missed last week and uh, almost uh, missed today, actually. I, I was just busy the past couple of weeks and haven't had time to record a podcast. So, uh, But fortunately, that changed and I'm able to uh, present this today. So, um, And just a heads up, if you do listen to this podcast, I might not have one next week as well. It's a busy week and we'll see. Um, and then, uh, pretty soon we'll start getting into some other issues and thoughts and, and then, uh, the spring will be over. I will at least take a break for the summer. So, um, so today I am concluding, uh, this series on the five solas and today is, uh, one that I think is vital to the other four. In fact, I would even say, and I'll discuss this a little bit. I will even say that this sola, sola, uh, soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone is probably the sola from which the other solas are derived. And so this is one of the most vital, fundamental, and central issues of Christian life. And so today we're discussing Soli Deo Gloria. Um, a psalm that many are familiar with is the 73rd Psalm. It was written by either Asaph or David. Uh, it's unclear who the author is, but many would espouse that Asaph transcribed the words of David uh, because it does say in most translations the Psalms of Asaph. And so uh, there's no telling. But either way, the psalmist says this. This is very familiar uh, scripture here to many people who, who have grown up in the church. This is Psalm 73. 25 through 26, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire, desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The author here understands that God is central and all-encompassing to everything. And a statement like this that confesses all one possesses, in other words, this is all that I have, um, God in this case, that might seem negative to someone. You know, if you say, uh, financially speaking, all I have is $10, it won't cover this thing or whatever it is that's $50, whatever the case might be. It's new, usually a negative statement. But in this case, the writer's most tremendous blessing is that all he has is God because he realizes that while God is all he has, God is also all he needs and all that he wants. And so when this is deducted, Christians conclude that God is all that is valuable and all that matters in life. And so his glory is always the issue no matter what. And I would say most of the time we lose that perspective. And so this is why it is vital to keep the perspective that the glory of God is always the issue. The reformers understood the doctrine of sola deo gloria, uh, soli deo gloria in a foundational and a central manner. In other words, uh, the glory of God is all-encompassing in life. It's, it's The glory of God alone is the most foundational and yet the most central doctrine of the five solas because 
while it's rudimentary to understand the vitality of God's glory alone, it's also absolutely necessary to understand it as a central part of everything deep and profound in scripture, any doctrine, any theology, the glory of God alone is the purpose. And if we don't realize that, if if all the if theology does not lead to doxology, to the worship of God, it is futile. When God's glory alone is not the central focus, the church fails in all endeavors, including missions. Hear me on this. This is going to sound a little backwards to some people, but it's correct. If people are the central focus of any goal, in other words, missions, witnessing, anything like that, Christians miss the point. And so often do churches miss the point today. Um, Worship services, worship gatherings have become this large event designed to reach people. That is not the point of Christian worship. Christian worship is designed to glorify God. And when we start creating our services and design our worship gatherings to reach people, we have completely missed the point. God has created everything solely for the purpose of his glory, which he will not share with anyone. Even in the church's ultimate shared glory with God, and I've discussed that on a few occasions, that that as heirs of Christ, we uh, have a shared glory with Christ, yet in that, God is the one who is glorified because Christ is glorified in his people. So it is not us that is being glorified, it is God himself. And so people are never the point of the gospel. Hear me on that. People are not the point of the gospel. Lost people are not the point of missions. Missions exists because worship does not. God is the gospel and the gospel's chief end. And so from the glory of God alone, stem the other four solas, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, all stem from the glory of God alone. And so God's glory is both the pinnacle and the foundation of Christian doctrine and life. And in realizing the doctrine of soli deo gloria, It should be concluded that God's glory is always the issue. No matter the circumstance, no matter the the situation, his glory is always the issue, will always be the issue, and has always been the issue at the center of history. And so this discussion is going to revolve around God's future glory, his present glory, and his past glory, which all meet in God's ultimate plan to glorify himself and his people. So let's talk about his future glory first, the future glory of God. Considering the incredible trials and the difficulties when you read scripture that the Apostle Paul faced throughout his fruitful ministry, trials, honestly, which are unimaginable to most people. Yes, certainly Christian persecution certainly does exist around the globe today, and it is increasing. But most of us in Western culture can't imagine the trials that Paul went through. But considering those trials, it's miraculous that he wrote the letters that he did with supreme encouragement to suffering people. Think about what Paul said to people who were suffering. Many times he wrote these letters while he was in prison suffering himself. And if anyone had a reason to complain, it was the Apostle Paul. But he's found continuously encouraging his readers and reminding them of the hope in Christ. When he discusses his trials... He expresses that they don't compare to the glory to be revealed in believers. That's Romans 8.18. The eighth chapter of, of Romans is found by many to be one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible. For Paul, uh, this is a man who was whipped. He says he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. 
He was shipwrecked. He was drifting at sea. He was in danger of robbers, and even his own people hated him. He was bitten by snakes. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He lists all of these things in 2 Corinthians 11. But for him, the glory of God was the underlying issue, and that which he found, in which he found delight. He found his delight, his purpose, his aim in the glory of God. And so foundational to the Christian life and to everything is the glory of God. Everything that has been done, that ever will be done, and everything ever created, and every good or bad situation that has been, ever will be, is allowed and happens solely for the glory of God. So the reformers understood that God's glory is the governing focus and purpose from which everything stems. Even the cross, certainly an act of matchless love, was primarily for the glory of God, even more than the love of people. And so without a realization of the governance of God's glory, a believer's perspective will be tainted and distorted and the root of incorrect responses because our perspective is incorrect when we don't realize the glory of God is the issue. The Apostle Paul and the Reformers understood that no matter the situation, good or bad, think of, think of the Reformers and their stories, many of them were burned at the stake. And they realized that everything, John Huss, for example, burning at the stake, singing a hymn while he was dying because he understood that God's glory is the issue and that the perseverance of the saints is a conclusive fact according to scripture. So God's glory has been the center of existence since before time and space began. And ultimately all circumstances serve to glorify God so that no matter what Christians face, God will be glorified. And we, we may not see how God uses situations, but we can rest assured that he will and that he will be glorified. And so if, if joy and satisfaction is found in Christ and in the glory of God, really all situations are seen and they should be seen merely as conduits through which the glory of God is revealed. So no matter what we face, God's glory is the issue. God's future glory is what I'm going to discuss here. His future glory should be a point of comfort and hope for Christians. When our perspective exists in the framework of God's glory, trials are understood. Christians rest, and we should rest, in the hope that one day there's a certainty rather than wishful thinking. A certainty of God's glory, a certainty that he, that these trials we go through are not in vain. And so despite health issues, God will be glorified of those who are heirs with him, according to Romans 8, 17. And so the, the foundation of God's future glory for believers is the notion of being heirs to the kingdom with Christ. And this is a truth um, it, it, it's a truth on which all other promises depend. Paul says that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. It's Romans 8, 28. Additionally, those same people who are called and, uh, and, and called according to his purpose, those same people, that's the church, that's Christians, 
are Christ's bride and are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29, and therefore glorified with him, Romans 8, 30. There's a progression there that Paul talks about. All things work together for the good of those that love God and who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. And because of that, they are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29, and therefore because they become the image of Christ, uh, they're glorified with him, Romans 8.30. So God's glory then is not sufficient only for God, but primarily for God, and for God and yet derived from him while concurrently benefiting the church. In other words, the church shares in the future glory of God and one day will be like Christ, alive with him, and reign as heirs eternally with him sharing in his glory, and yet he is the one receiving the glory. And so to consider God's glory is to simultaneously consider the glory of God's people to whom are given the benefits of God's kingdom. So no matter the trial, the situation, the circumstance, a future of glory exists for the people of God. And so perseverance of the saints refers to the fact that irrespective of circumstances or consequences, including death and illness— Ultimately, God's people arise victorious because they reign with Christ and they share in his glory. And if Christ exists in unparalleled hope and future, namely God's future glory and subsequently the church's future glory, if, if that is the case, then believers should rejoice and live in that fact presently. So let's talk about God's present glory. Soli Deo Gloria is a doctrine within the five solas uh, that expresses perhaps the most fundamental but vital aspect of Christian life, and that is the glory of God. And the glory of God is the central issue in everything. God's glory is evident through the text of the Bible, throughout Christian history, and certainly in the present day church. Countless believers have given their lives so that God is glorified in their lives and ministry, not counting their own lives as valuable compared to the glory of God. And so they now share as heirs to his kingdom. But still, the same has to be true of believers now, not just in the past. God's glory is not only a past glory, but also a present glory. And the word often used in the Old Testament for glory is the word kavod. And it means an abundance of honor. In the New Testament, uh, the word is doxa. It's where we get our word doxology from. It means praise or honor. And, and so we use this term to describe a worthiness of God. And in both contexts, the idea is exceeding worth and deserved praise. Now, some people talk about the Shekinah glory of God. It's a concept that's in the Old Testament. The word is never used but it's a concept that is there, and it's talking about his visible presence that, that's there. And so in the New Testament, when you talk about doxa and doxology, a doxology is a spoken text which praises God. And Paul ends and begins his letters often with a doxology. The undeserved and unmerited salvation of God's people is certainly reason to praise him. But God's glory transcends beyond any of his works. And it's often, it's thought that people, Christ died for people above all. But hear me on this. Christ's sacrificial death was first and foremost for the glory of God. In fact, this is the case for Christ's entire ministry on earth, according to John 12, 28. 
The author of Hebrews confesses that Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him in Hebrews 12 too. But this joy was not his own people, but rather the glory of the Father who sent him. Jesus, although being God himself, understood his ministry on earth to be one with the primary aim and intention of glorifying the Father. And Christian life is designed to glorify the Father through the glory of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is also glorified in the triune Godhead. So soli deo gloria implies the administrating function of the fifth sola. In other words, to glorify God, all actions must occur by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and according to scripture alone. And then the overarching sola there is soli deo gloria. And so when this progression happens, God is glorified through the believer's willing act. If God's glory exists merely as a past tense reality, believers serve no purpose in the world today, but God has given the church an utmost calling to glorify him. The church's primary purpose currently is not to reach the lost. Reaching the lost certainly is a... Is, is good, but it is a byproduct, a, product, a byproduct of the overarching purpose of glorifying God. The church throughout history has glorified God, ultimately, and so the church presently holds the same call to glorify God. A glaring issue in the modern church is the glorification of people above God. When the gospel's focus is on people, it is tainted, it's distorted, and in fact, it becomes no gospel at all. Because as exceedingly much as God loves people, he loves himself more. There's people that would say, well, that makes God sound conceited or stuck on himself. Well, he is stuck on himself. Who else is he going to be stuck on, you or me or somebody less? He is stuck on himself. And so even in loving people and dying for people, it is for his own glory. And any proclamation that dismisses, dismisses this this often difficult truth in, in such a self-centered society, it really doesn't proclaim the gospel, but a lie of Satan. And furthermore, when people acquire the perspective that the purpose of reaching people is not merely for people's sake, but for the glory of God who has sent them to preach— their perspective sustains them in trials. What I mean by that is if you go through trials or persecutions, um, if you're doing that with, if if you're serving God and you're going through these trials and persecutions for people, that will not sustain you, but the glory of God will. If the church's mission is for people, it will fail because ultimately people are not worthy to be honored as God is. The church's present mission stems from God's glory. So not only is the glory of God alone relevant to people's uh, to people in the Bible in the past, but also in a connecting manner to people today. So there hear me on this, we will one day share in the glory of Christ with him, but we have a purpose now. And certainly if we make mistakes, God uses those mistakes. But those who are called according to his purpose are the ones whose lives are radically transformed by him. And so the church's supreme and all-encompassing purpose is the glory of God alone, no matter the circumstances. And so believers should not only understand that God will be glorified in all situations, including trials, but is also being glorified in his people's lives. 
So let's talk about his eternal glory, God's eternal glory alone. God exists outside of time and space, and so therefore his glory is infinitely beyond comprehension. Jesus, in his prayer to the Father in John 17, he references triune God's eternal glory even before the world began. And so the glory of God is eternally true. In other words, not only in the present and future, but also in the past, through all time, and even outside of time and space. Soli Deo Gloria um, acknowledges God's eternal glory. It acknowledges all parts of God's glory, not just his future glory or his present glory, but his eternal glory, that he has been and will be supremely glorified no matter the time, space, dimension, or any other external factor. God is timeless, and so his glory is also timeless. And so to profess God's eternal glory alone is to simultaneously profess, believe, and acknowledge the truth proclaimed by the Apostle Paul, namely that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Nonetheless, uh, this, this truth transcends the present and the future, but also the past. So God's eternal glory uh, transcends all time and space. In another way, Christian history is brimming with God's glory in every big or small action and in every millisecond of time. Good or bad, all circumstances serve the glory of God's purposes. Because even though humankind often means for bad, and we see this throughout scripture constantly, God means it for good. Think of Genesis 50 or the 13 chapters in Genesis, the story of Joseph, what mankind meant for bad, God meant for good. So even among living believers now, past actions don't govern God's glory. But God's glory is supreme above all. And so to believe that human mistakes somehow impact the glory of God is to perhaps subconsciously believe that God's glory is not supreme. But because God's glory is exceedingly supreme, uh, human error doesn't sway the glory of God, but is instead subject to it. Any mistakes people make, it works together for good. Believers should take comfort in this truth, because even in times of failure, which we all fail, all things work together for the good of God's people. And furthermore, Christ is co-eternally glorified with both the Father and the Spirit. The glory of Christ is a perpetual fact rather than a mere concept which began with his incarnation. The Son shares in triune glorification with the Father and the Spirit. So the glory of God alone in Christ is a reality which transcends time and space. Not only in the, pa in the past, but even before time began, God has glorified himself. Therefore, his creation serves, all of God's creation serves to continue that glorification, not to diminish it. And so in, in these thoughts of everything occurring for the glory of God, someone might question Christ's emptying of himself to become human and give himself as the atonement for sin, as Paul uh, references in Philippians chapter 2. But this act, the act of Christ emptying himself, does not negate his supreme glory. And said, the act itself of emptying himself and becoming human, the incarnation, that act itself serves as serves that supreme glory. In other words, Christ became incarnate to glorify his divine nature as God. 
He did not cease being God while he was on earth. The emptying of himself does not refer to a vacation of deity, but rather to the humility in that act. Reformer Ulrich Zwingli says this. He's a 15th and 16th century reformer. He says, we cannot but admit that even the least thing takes place unless it is ordered by God. Indeed, nothing is too small in us or in any other creature not to be ordered by the all-knowing and all-powerful providence of God. When Paul says that all things work uh, all things are from God, through God, and to God in Romans 11.36. It's a consummate statement and one which should be taken literally. In other words, everything from the biggest blessing to the most severe catastrophe to even someone's decision of whether to order fries with a meal is designed by God. It is decreed through him and ultimately serves his glory. And so a typical response might be that such a belief in that level of sovereignty causes humanity to seem like robots. But hear me on this, it's worse. Romans 9 says that we are clay and God is the potter. God's glory exists not only as a present and future reality, but also as a past reality. The most magnificent sin does not catch God by surprise. It did not catch God by surprise. And in fact, it serves to his glory in the grand scheme of his plan. And so no matter the mistakes you make, rest assured that as God's uh, part of God's people, it will work for good. Believers who hold to an idea that their mistakes somehow dictate the glory of God um, not only live with a, a foolish perspective, but a prideful perspective. God's glory is eternal and unwavering, and therefore no matter the decisions or the mistakes that someone makes— or has made even in the past, believers need to rest assured that God has a purpose in it. The Christian's responsibility then is to not misuse these consequences and these mistakes that we make. All trials certainly exist for God's glory, but so also do the mistakes and the consequences. Although sin does not serve God itself, God uses it for his glory. And what I mean by that is when Christians fall, the response is crucial. We can, um, we can make a mistake that dishonors God, and we will, we do, we fail in our human nature, our fleshly nature, as Christ is changing us more like him, we still fail. But from that point, whenever someone fails, he or she needs to choose to continue, they can choose to continue living in sin, which is the wrong response, or they can align themselves with God's plan of redemption. That's the correct response. And so a key component in the doctrine of soli deo gloria is a constant realization that God's glory is overarching and all-encompassing. The church is to live with God's glory as the end means of all that is done and accomplished. Not only is God glorified now, but he will and, and he will be in the future, but also in all that has already happened including our mistakes. So believer, hear me, take hope in that, take courage. And get up and live, whatever the consequences for your sin are, know that God uses it for his glory. And it's not futile to live for him even though you've made mistakes. Because the, the consequences and the mistakes do not govern God's glory. God's glory governs everything. 
And so no matter what we have done, what has already happened, God is glorified. And for his glory alone, that's the uh, ending issue for everything. God's glory, the glory of God, soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. The astonishing fact in the doctrine of the glory of God alone is that God is glorified in all that has happened, is happening, and will happen, and he's glorified in the lives of his people. Christians are heirs with Christ, and therefore even the glory that is revealed in the people of God is 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 not for the glory of people, but for the glory of God. The cross is not primarily a display of love for people, even though it is certainly that, but it is more a display of love for God. Christ died for his people because of God the Father, because of himself. And so it is the glory of God alone that puts all circumstances in the correct perspective. No matter what Christians face, good or bad, the realization of God's glory should cause believers uh, not to abandon doing right, but to increase in desire to do so. The, the satisfaction of sharing in the glory of Christ through all future eternity is dependent on glorifying God now in the present, in the present decisions and circumstances that we make. God is and always will be glorified in his people. And a qualifier for being one of God's people is a personal and life-transforming relationship with him now. And so to understand the glory of God alone is to understand the responsibility of serving God now. Someone who comprehends, uh, comprehends soli deo gloria is one who faces all degrees of trials and persecution in a way that honors God because his glory is desired above all for such a person, for that individual. Soli Deo Gloria does not neglect the present for the future or the past. In other words, we shouldn't consider the present in futility simply because of a past mistake or an understanding that God will be glorified in the future. Uh, That's not the point. But Christians should live with a resolute aim of glorifying God out of satisfaction for him because we glorify that in which we are satisfied. If we're satisfied in sports, that's what we glorify. If we're satisfied in money, that's what we glorify. When Christians are satisfied in God, he is glorified in them. The glory of God alone then is the single issue and doctrine from which the other solas occur. And when purpose is unclear, when trials are overwhelming, and when questions arise, the church should remember and be changed by this doctrine of the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. Thank you for listening to the Act of Worship podcast. I hope that this series on the five solas has been beneficial. Uh, You can be looking for a book with this material in it. Uh, It'll have some extra stuff as well. Um, At some point that will be published. And so I hope this has been encouraging and edifying uh, the five solas. And just to recap them, um, soli, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, soli deo gloria. So grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. And so let's live to the glory of God alone through these other uh, solas that we have covered. So hopefully this has been beneficial, encouraging, and edifying to you. I hope and pray so. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones.